Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening again. Thank you for being with us on ADH. There's plenty on and we're giving you an extended program. Tell your friends, you know how to get onto us. Make sure they do. And email me, alanjones at adh.tv. Plenty for you tonight. We'll all be interested in the views of one of Australia's outstanding political journalists, the editor-at-large of the Australian newspaper, Paul Kelly. He has seen many prime ministers and many governments. Let's see what he makes of this one. But today is International Women's Day. Much will be said about the progress and the contribution women have made across the world in their hard-won efforts to create a fairer, and better society. Politics isn't everything, far from it, but it is a metaphor, I suppose, of the progress women have made that our country, amongst others, can now boast producing a woman prime minister. The talent, of course, is there for more. So much will be said today about achievement, loss of opportunity, and the need to increase the chances for women to share in responsibility and pay the same benefits as men enjoy. But I want to make a plug today for the most important women in the world, mothers. My mother was a star. She was educated, but she ran into a farmer and married him. And with it, she married adversity, drought, flood, cars getting bogged, cattle dying from drought, kids to be educated from the outback, a family that never ever had a holiday together. But she generated hope and happiness and a satisfaction with her lot. There are millions of such women, and on International Women's Day, I salute them. Well, the interest rate assault on struggling Australians, and I'll have something to say about that later, may be coming to an end. It is now clear, you've got to read between the lines and all this sort of stuff, in an environment where bureaucrats, including Reserve Bank, speak in riddles, it now seems clear that there will be no rate rise at the next meeting in April of the Reserve Bank. Even though this morning, the Governor, Philip Lowe, rightly argued that inflation was too high and that more rate rises may be on the horizon. But sensibly and surely, the Reserve Bank will assess whether 10 consecutive interest rate increases have slowed the economy enough to take charge of inflation. But the problem, you see, is always with government. Just witness the bizarre spending of the Albanese government and the desperate spending of the Perrottet government with an election looming. The spend is inflationary. I repeat what I've said many times. We had a budget in New South Wales last year that went on a spending spree, $27 billion, and they're still spending, trying to win an election. Ridiculous promises everywhere and plenty of green stuff. 
subsidies for electric vehicles, 30,000 new charging stations. All this spending is inflationary. The only savings in last year's New South Wales, 95 billion, 95,000 million dollar budget, were piddling 32 million out of 95,000 million. Of course, Chalmers and Albanese are running for cover, having promised over and over again that life will be better under Labor. Now the Treasurer is saying that the interest rates started rising before the change in government. Hello? Labor owned nine out of the 10 increases. Chalmers should forget the RBA and stop pretending that the federal government and other governments can spend their way out of trouble. Australians are facing a full-blown cost-of-living crisis. And so far, nothing has happened with the Albanese government to address that crisis. The reality is the bulk of Australian families have no spare cash or capacity to deal with yesterday's interest rate increase. And I raised last night an answer to that, instruct the banks to arrange long-term fixed rate funding for the mortgage market in Australia. Long-term assets to be financed with long-term funding. People with mortgages wouldn't have to worry themselves sick about the next interest rate increase. I talked also last night about COVID. We follow up things here and the untruths that were told at the time and the consequences of that, not just the massive debt that we've now inherited, but now we learn that Daniel Andrews, having subjected Victorians to one of the world's most extreme lockdowns, was not doing any of this for health reasons. Under freedom of information legislation, it's now clear that Daniel Andrews has spent millions of dollars of taxpayers' money assessing community attitudes so that he knew what to say in his daily coronavirus briefings. Not for health reasons did he continue the lockdowns, but rather a $2 million plus contract to the Premier's hand-picked political strategist, John Armitage, revealing that the fear and the threats and the hysteria were working. The public was supporting the lockdowns. So keep up, keep it up, Daniel, was the advice. As one of our editorials says today, this is the stuff of cults, the Stockholm Syndrome, where hostages sympathise with their captors. Where Andrews should have been maximising freedom and opportunity while addressing the coronavirus, the evidence from Victoria is that draconian lockdown measures didn't result in better health outcomes. The number of deaths in Victoria was higher than elsewhere. The cost to taxpayer was higher than elsewhere. But every arm of government imposed draconian demands on ordinary people and Andrews was getting his orders from a labour aligned research company which determined his political strategy. Victorians, have you got a memory? You weren't being controlled on the basis of health advice. You were being denied freedoms and stripped of your ability to live a normal life make a living on the basis of what was polling and what the polling was telling Premier Andrews about his own performance. And of course, Premier Andrews and every public servant maintained their income while businesses were wiped out and children were denied an education. People couldn't even go to the funeral of their loved ones. These lockdown measures will be felt for years to come as people continue to try to recover from the financial and emotional toll. Through it all, as I said last night, we weren't told the truth. While in Victoria, what about that Sally Rugg, the so-called Chief of Staff working for the federal Teal MP, Monique Ryan? 
This beats reality TV. She was on about $160,000 and complained about the hours she was asked to work. Having sought to trash the reputation of her employer in a court case that she has brought on, she then wanted to continue in the same employment. She wanted the money, you see. Well, the federal court judge, Debbie Mortimer, yesterday put her in her place, telling Sally Rugg that the evidence that she gave was about her own ambitions. The judge said the arguments were, quote, all about Miss Rugg. The judge decided yesterday that Dr. Ryan would not be forced to work with Miss Rugg until a trial could be held to test allegations that Rugg was made to work, quote, unreasonable hours and breached the Fair Work Act. So Sally Rugg is off the government payroll, 160,000 bucks. Perhaps she can find someone else who'd pay her $160,000. I'm not too sure there'd be many out there. And what about this co-founder of the Sydney-based company Atlassian, Cannon Brooks? How many multi-million dollar homes has this bloke and his partner bought? Joe Aston, who writes brilliantly in the Financial Review newspaper, calls Cannon Brooks Double Bay Jesus, a reference, of course, there's the picture to his beard. The bloke and his partner have spent hundreds of millions of dollars on personal property, but they've now laid off about a 5% of their workforce, 500 workers. But Cannon Brooks says, to those who are leaving us, we are deeply sorry. Employees will receive 15 weeks of severance pay, plus one week for each year of their employment, and they can keep their laptops. The company, Atlassian, has yet to turn a profit. The mind spins, does it not? Stay with us. I'm Alan Jones. You're on ADH TV. If politicians cared to move into the real world and listened rather than lectured, they would understand the inescapable truth that while there is a cost of living crisis, governments, through appalling policy, are not solving the crisis, but adding to it. There's an election coming up in New South Wales. You've heard me talk about this. The government is as green as they come. Remember I told you yesterday, one of them, James Griffin in Manly, in the presence of his Premier, nodding agreement, said of coal-fired power stations, and I quote, everybody wants to shut them down as quickly as possible. What? Everybody wants to shut them down as quickly as possible. And when the Energy Minister Keane had a blinding insight that he might need coal-fired power and previously told the media, quote, we're not ruling this in or out, that is, delaying the closing down of a rearing, Premier Perrottet, once a Liberal with some common sense, but he's gone hopelessly green, said, quote, intervening in a rearing is not part of our plans. This in response to Keane saying that the government could intervene to keep Australia's biggest coal-fired power station a rearing open. Yet you've got this New South Wales minister lining up with the policy eunuch, Labor's Chris Bowen, to say that everybody wants to shut down coal-fired power stations as quickly as possible. That's why I'm returning to this issue. We have to understand we have a massive crisis on our hands inspired by utterly irresponsible policy. Remember, every increase in energy costs feeds into the cost of living. As I talk to you now, as you can see, I'm sitting at a desk. There's a television monitor in front of me. There are lights and electrical fittings. All have been transported here. Without energy, they stay in the storeroom. You'll put food on the table tonight, whether it be meat or vegetables or milk, all brought to the supermarket by trucks, utterly dependent on energy to get to their destination. But this mob want nothing to do with fossil fuels. Renewables, the sun and the wind will do the lot. Bjorn Lobborg, I speak to often, 
and I communicate with Bjorn Lomberg. And he reinforces this truth. He's a visiting fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. He's the president of the Copenhagen Consensus, which is a, an outfit dedicated to researching and understanding the economics of global warming and other problems facing a growing planet. Now, he wrote a book, which everyone should read, False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor and Fails to Fix the Planet. Now, remember, Bowen and Keenan Perrottet and Co. want fossil fuels, coal and gas out of the way in seven years' time. Bjorn Lomborg says, and I quote, the rich world's fossil fuel hypocrisy is on full display in its response to the global energy crisis following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. He says, quote, while the rich G7 countries admonish the world's poor to use only renewables because of climate concerns, Europe and the US are begging Arab nations to expand oil production. Germany is reopening coal-fired power plants. Spain and Italy are ramping up African gas production. Many European countries, writes Bjorn Lomborg, have asked Botswana to mine more coal such that the country would have to triple its exports, unquote. He makes the point repeatedly that fossil fuels today provide more than three quarters of the world's energy. Solar and wind deliver less than 3%. Says Lomborg of Renewables, quote, this promised nirvana is a sham consisting of wishful thinking and green marketing. Presumably Bowen and Keane and co, Albanese, Perite, whomever, know more than the research by Bjorn Lomborg reveals. Writes Lomborg, quote, in rich countries such as Germany and Spain and Australia and, and Matt Canavan and Terry McCran and Andrew Bolt have said this a million times. He says of those countries, most solar and wind would never have been installed if not for subsidies. Says Lomborg, solar and wind are incapable of delivering the power needed for industrialization, powering water pumps, tractors and machines, all the ingredients needed to lift people out of poverty, unquote. And he says, as rich countries are now discovering, solar and wind remain fundamentally unreliable. No sun or wind, he says, means no power. Battery technology offers no answers. Globally, he writes, there are only enough batteries to power global average electricity consumption for one minute and 15 seconds. He writes, even by 2030, with a projected rapid battery scale up, they would last worldwide, providing power for less than 12, uh, 12 minutes, unquote. Bowen and Keane and co are not listening. Our energy Armageddon is around the corner because as Lomborg says, this is why the rich world is on track to continue to rely mostly on fossil fuels for decades. The International Energy Agency estimates that if all current climate promises are delivered, fossil fuels will still constitute two-thirds of the rich world's energy by 2050. Lomborg quotes, but of course here, we're trying to deem, shut them all down. Where will we be? Lomborg quotes are leading to the hypocrisy of all this banned fossil fuel rubbish. The Nigerian vice president, who has said, and I quote, no one in the world has been able to industrialise using renewable energy, unquote. Well, in particular, because of this fictitious climate change nonsense, denying the developing 
world itself, the use of fossil fuels, says Lomberg prophetically, and this applies to us, this is where we're heading, says Lomberg, insisting that the world's poor, but you could just say the world's population, insisting that the world's poor live without fossil fuels is virtue signaling that plays with other people's lives, unquote. And that's it. You either believe Lomborg or you believe Bowen and his green mates in the Labor and the Liberal parties. And if you believe Lomborg, together we've got to do something about it. You get a chance in New South Wales on March 25. My own view is the Liberal government in New South Wales does not only deserve not to be returned, it has earned outright rejection. As one of my viewers emailed me today to say, on the Lismore flood issue alone, they don't deserve support. And then there is this playing with people's lives with an energy policy that I repeat is an economic suicide note. My first guest tonight is a very distinguished Australian, a political journalist and author and a television commentator who's written seven books on political events in Australia since the 1970s, including the 1975 Australian constitutional crisis. Paul Kelly and I were both there at the time, by the way. He's also written The March of Patriots, which chronicles the creation of a modern Australia during the era of Prime Ministers Keating and Howard. And his book, Triumph and Demise, focuses on the leadership crises of the Rudd-Gillard years. Paul Kelly is now the editor-at-large of the Australian newspaper. He was born in Sydney, a graduate of the University of Sydney, who worked in the Prime Minister's department in Canberra for two years before changing to journalism. He's a doctor of letters from the University of Melbourne. And as I've said earlier, he has seen it all in Canberra. What then does he make of where we are now? And Paul Kelly joins me. Paul, thank you for being with us. You wrote, you wrote only as recently as today that, and I quote, the outstanding feature of our public debate is the almost complete absence of any appreciation that too many public policies aren't working or are heading in the wrong direction. You said, we've lost our sense of the bigger picture direction. Paul, simple question, how do we get to this point and how do we get out of it? We got to this point, Alan, because we've had successive failures of governments, both coalition governments and Labor governments. And I think the great dilemma Australia faces is that the, the challenges we confront, the problems we confront over the course of the past 15 years have been greater than the capacity of our political leaders to solve. There's a discontinuity between our political capacity on the one hand and the national challenges we face on the other. Mm. The Albanese Labor government only won 32.8% of the primary vote last May, but as you say, they got there on a safe change agenda. That is no scares, no risks, a contrived manifesto. Are they now going to suffer because of that? Because any major reform like the superannuation announcement is a broken promise. There's no question about that. And this is what I've argued for quite some time. Anthony Albanese was really clever and you've got to pay him full marks for the campaign he waged last year when he became prime minister. But the slogan was safe change and the Labor agenda was a fairly modest and safe agenda. But the problem Prime Minister Albanese faces is that Australia needs bold policies. We need bold policies to confront the problems we face, whether we're talking now about high inflation, poor wages, stagnant living standards, high cost of living, 
weak productivity, severe national security challenges. All this means that we need a government that's got the capacity to confront the issues and be bold. And so, of course, the problem with the Albanese government is it's trapped between its very modest election agenda, in which it was not anxious to confront the problems the country faces, and the reality that Anthony Albanese faces as Prime Minister when he's got to address these challenges. But never mind the government. I mean, does the public have the stomach for critical reform. I mean, coronavirus showed us that the public are quite prepared to fall into line with whatever the government tells them to do. I do think there's a problem with Australia's political culture. And I think this has been building for quite some time. There's a sense of complacency. And the fact of the matter is, is that the country's been the great beneficiary of the trading relationship with China uh, high commodity prices, yeah. um, virtually uh, zero interest rates from the Reserve Bank for quite a period of time. So I think that this has lulled the public into a false sense of security. Yeah, definitely. I think we've lost the sense of national direction and sacrifice, self-sacrifice, which is going to be required for the public to face up to the challenges the country faces mm. and be responsive when politicians take hard decisions and in fact send the signal mm. that they are prepared to accept strong leadership. Mm. The country is not there at the moment at all. See, I made the point that um, this broken promise. Now, it was heralded by many as a triumph that was going to wedge Dutton. And I'm surprised that Peter Dutton didn't raise 2014, when as you and I know, in 2014, they came to government and they saw that Medicare was a mess as it is now. And they promised then in the budget to put a $7 co-payment on, $5 of which was going to go into research to better improve the health situation. Now, Labor screamed from the rooftops, broken promise, broke. The rabble in the Senate said broken promise, broken promise. Some of the media said broken promise, and suddenly they had to back off. Now, when you've got that kind of environment, I mean, Albo led us to believe that everything would be nice and safe under him, as opposed to Morrison. Morrison was on the nose. But now, as you say, we've got higher interest rates, mortgage stress, a massive budget deficit, inflation running way ahead of wages. You've been around a long time. How do you turn that around? And, and I would argue, Paul, I should say that's not difficult. You've got to just prosecute the case to the public, don't you? We seem to have a shallow talent pool in Canberra and there aren't people who can prosecute the case. You need authority, you need courage, and you need persuasion. Now, at the moment, we don't have those qualities in great supply mm. when it comes mm. to our political leadership. In the past, we have. We're the ones talking now about Bob Hawke or Paul Keating or John Howard or Peter Costello. I think if we look at those prime ministers and treasurers, there was a capacity there to identify the problem, put the issue to the public and really yep. wage a sustained campaign. Yep. So it can be done. Definitely. I think it's more difficult now. I don't think there's any doubt at all that governing in this country is more difficult and reform is more difficult still. Mm. But I mean, that's the job of political leaders. I mean, mm. that's why you go into politics. You go into politics to make a difference. You go into politics to put forward the sort of policies the country needs and stake your reputation on your capacity to persuade 
and implement those policies. If that's not what you're on about, then there's no point going into politics. That's it. But you may not have the ability to do it. And that's part of the problem, isn't it? I mean, it's no different here with the Liberal government in New South Wales. A budget last year, which went on a $27 billion spending spree, and the promises keep coming. So if there's no spending restraint in Canberra or here, is the remedy higher taxation or do nothing? Well, this is a fundamental question, and it's a question that Jim Chalmers and Anthony Albanese are going, to, uh, are going to have to confront over the course of the next year or two. We've got a very significant uh, budget deficit debt problem. And my instinct is to think that Labor will attempt to solve this on the tax side, that is higher taxes, rather than on the yes. spending side, that is spending restraint. That will be a fundamental decision that this government takes. You made the point today that the Hawke-Keating party doesn't exist anymore. And I've made the point many times here, there is no Liberal Party. I mean, the Liberal Party doesn't look anything like the Menzies Liberal Party or even the John Howard Liberal Party. Can I just ask that question again? And I mean, it's difficult for you, you work amongst these people, but I can ask the question, you can pass if you like. I mean, I see the problem being that the talent pool in Canberra is pretty shallow. We don't have people of the calibre of Costello and Keating and Hawke and John Howard. I mean, it's pretty shallow We're on both sides even if they know the problem, they don't seem to be able to devise solutions and then don't have the skill or the talent to prosecute the case. Look, I think that point is essentially correct, uh, Alan. I've got no problem at all in saying that. If you look back to the Hawke cabinet in the 1980s, I mean, this was uh, a cabinet of great talent. You had Hawke as prime minister, you had uh, Keating, you had senior ministers such as uh, Bill Hayden, uh, Peter Walsh, John Button, uh, John Dawkins, Gareth Evans. <laughs> I mean, this was a cabinet that battered a long mm. way down. Mm. And well, that's what Bob Hawke, Paul, to interrupt you, Bob Hawke always said to me that you had to bat down to number six because he loved his cricket. You had to bat down to number six. And he always batted down to number six. We can't bat down to number six today. Well, I was just about to make that point. I mean, it's sort of fair enough to say you only need to bat down to number six. I, I understand that, that particular point. But we're having trouble these days, Alan, batting to number six. <laughs> Absolutely. How can a nation survive, Paul? on an energy policy which talks about 43% reduction in carbon dioxide emissions, requiring 20,000 on Bowen's admission, 500 watt solar panels every day, 47 megawatt wind turbines every day, 10,000 kilometres of transmission lines, and then the clapped out Snowy Hydro scheme, six years of bungled billions. Paul, is this fantasy land? Well, I'm quite pleased that Chris Bowen uh, talked about some of the details of this investment. The investment required to get to 43% by uh, 2030 is simply enormous. I mean, this is, this is one of the great industrial changes in Australian economic history. The public have got no sense of what this involves. We have this complete fantasy debate about emission reduction numbers. Let's do 40, let's do 50, let's yeah. do 60, let's do 75. It's utterly meaningless. And the point to make about the Albanese government and Chris Bowen is, okay, they've actually accepted responsibility for the consequences of their policy. So Chris mm. Bowen as the minister mm. is now outlining what's got to happen in order to get to 43%. Well, this is going to be an enormous challenge for the country. Mm. The idea 
as far as I'm concerned, that we could have some comfortable or smooth transition justifies reality. But I think this is going to be a really difficult oh, yeah. and, 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 and very troubling transition for the country. Definitely. I mean, this was Bowen, the same Bowen, who when Shorten was the opposition leader and they thought he was a shoo-in, took a tax policy to the electorate, which was punitive and destructive and said, oh, if you don't like it, don't vote for us. I'm arguing this bloke's now taking an energy policy, which is punitive and destruction and destructive with the potential to destroy Albanese's prime ministership. Well, I, I certainly think that this is the most audacious and risky policy we've so far seen from the Albanese government. I think Bowen is a really interesting minister. I mean, a lot of the other ministers are pretty cautious. They're still feeling their way. The interesting thing about Chris Bowen is, and he devised the policy when he was in opposition, he's come in very aggressive, very confident. Yes, yes. He's tied the government into these policies. He's running hard. He's got the 43% reduction through the parliament. He's now going for the mechanism to get that bill through the parliament as well. But the fact of the matter is, once all this is in place, this is going to be, I think, mm. an enormously difficult and troubling mm. transition for the yeah. country. And I think a very risky transition Definitely. for the Labor government. Definitely. You've got this Ted Woodley, a former managing director of PowerNet, GasNet, Energy Australia, now saying that Turnbull's $2 billion estimate, and Turnbull's gone and leaves the mess to someone else, the $2 billion estimate of Snowy 2.0 will end up costing $20 billion or more. And his words, Snowy 2.0 never stacked up economically, technically or environmentally. It will never pay for itself. There are better alternatives. Paul, as I said, Turnbull's gone. And as Ted Woodley says, the current government didn't approve the debacle, but they'll be held accountable if it fails. What should happen to Snowy Hydro? Well, I think there are a couple of key points here, Alan. The first point to make is that Malcolm Turnbull put this up in lights. I mean, he saw this. Yeah. He saw this as one of his most significant achievements. I think that's really interesting. He kept on talking about engineering, that you had to have an engineering mindset. And I think we all know what Malcolm was like. He saw himself as the smartest person in the room. Well, we've now had Chris Bowen and the new government tell us this project is just riddled with problems, mm. riddled with difficulties. Yeah. Chris Bowen has said that. He said that they'll have to have a good look at it. Uh, I don't think we've yet been told the full story about exactly what's going to happen with Snowy Hydro. But this could end up being, I yep. think, a real tale of Absolutely. woe for the country. Absolutely. Just back to Bowen. I mean, is there a schizophrenia in the Albanese government? Because Bowen is openly despising fossil fuels. Madeleine King, this energy minister, and she seems to be the canary in the mine, she's condemning the Greens for blanket bans, arguing that banning coal and gas is, quote, impossible and ridiculous and would have, she said, vast consequences for Australia's role as an energy supplier to Asia. Paul, why not use coal and gas as an energy supplier to Australia? Well, I think the interesting thing about Madeleine King is that she's a tough-minded woman, a resources minister coming from Western Australia. She knows the industry. She's made it absolutely clear that she's committed to gas yep. as a transition fuel. Now, there are very significant differences, I think, within the government about gas. When it comes to coal, I think essentially 
the story here is a closed book as far as the Albanese government is concerned. Mm. That is, there won't be new coal mines, but the Prime Minister's made it clear he wants Australia to continue to be a strong coal exporter. Now, the interesting point to make about this, Alan, is that the Greens, coming from the left, coming from the progressive side of politics, are putting the Labor government under a lot of heat. And what the Greens are saying is, no more coal, no more gas, and we want to drive Labor to the situation where it starts to make concessions mm -hmm. on that front. Mm -hmm. Now, so far, the government hasn't made That's those dangerous. concessions. But I think the politics of the left, the politics of the left in terms of the competition between Labor and the Greens are going to be fascinating yeah. and really critical mm. over the course of the next 12 to 18 yeah. months. I mean, it's dangerous stuff because Madeleine King has said these bans, blanket bans on coal and gas, her words, shows an ignorance of the needs of the economy. But I would say that criticism by some of her colleagues, uh, Chris Bowen, coal and gas, and the left, of course, who are cheering him on. And King argues that any ban would result in a decline in our export capacity and export, export earnings. She's correct, isn't she? Well, she's completely correct. And I think one of the issues here is if you look at the Labor caucus, where exactly is the balance of power in the yes. Labor caucus yes. and the balance of policy on these issues of mm. coal and gas? And mm. I suspect the Labor caucus is a touch more left wing than yes. the Labor front bench. Yes. And there's no doubt the Labor rank and file, the so-called true believers, are very much to the left. Yes. And so that's why I say the way this contest plays out between Labor and the Greens is going to be fascinating. And the big question is whether Albanese as Prime Minister makes concessions to the Greens in terms of energy and climate mm. change policy. Now, I think it would be a very big mistake for him to do that, but he'll be under a lot of pressure. Mm. Paul, just one thing that viewers are saying, listening to both of us speak, why are we exporting this stuff so that others can have cheap energy and we're denying the same resources to provide us with our cheap energy needs. Well, I think there's a lot of uh, hypocrisy here, Alan. I mean, we know that Australia contributes about 1.2 or 1.3% yep, global yep. emissions. And we also should remember the, the famous comment made by John Kerry, who is uh, President Biden's climate change envoy, and what Kerry said not long after he took over the job was America can achieve uh, uh, zero emissions, but if China doesn't come to the party, it won't mean much. It won't solve the global problem. Now, translate that to Australia. Australia's got to be a good international citizen. I've got no doubt at all about that. But one of the interesting features about this entire debate in this country is we tend to forget we're only contributing 1.2 mm. or 1.3% of global emissions. We can't solve the problem. Mm. We need to have a sensible, proportionate response, mm. a proportionate response, not a response which is disproportionate that hurts our economy. Yes, but I mean, Paul, you know, carbon dioxide is 0.04% of the atmosphere and man contributes only 3% and we're 1.3% of 3% of 0.04% and we're standing the economy on its head. Listen, the voice, the voice, a race-based change to the constitution. Surely that was once called apartheid. Well, I've looked at this very, very carefully. I've looked in particular at the proposal put forward by the Prime Minister, and I've expressed a lot of reservations <clears throat> about this proposal. 
And essentially the way to understand this, Alan, is that we are now talking about putting an institution into the constitution defined by group rights, group rights or racial rights. Now, I don't think there's any place in the Australian constitution for a new institution based on group rights. But not only are we doing that, the proposal then says that this new institution will give advice to the parliament and to the government across the broad range of policy. That is, not just advising on group rights issues, but advising on any issue Everything. that affects the Australian yeah. community. Well, so I think when you put this together and look at it, this is something which does not deserve to be passed in its present form. Mm, I agree and I think you. if the Prime Minister, if the Prime Minister is wise, he will review this and look at the model of the voice. If he refuses to do that, then I must say, I think this referendum will be defeated. Paul, we've got 3.8% of the population that are Indigenous, according to the census, and 11 Indigenous MPs in a parliament of 227. That is 4.8% of the parliament. Now, there is significant over-representation. And then at my last count, there are over 50 government-funded entities giving a voice to Indigenous Australians. Uh, there is no one voice for Indigenous Australians. That's what the Indigenous Australians tell me. There are many voices. But isn't Jacinta Price entitled to ask why her voice is ignored? I mean, we don't need ears. Uh, we need ears, rather. We don't need voices. Well, I think this is highly pertinent. I mean, we've got 10 or 11 Indigenous uh, people in the Australian Parliament at the moment, spread across the parties, which is a good thing. So how do they relate to the voice? Who actually sp speaks for the Indigenous people once the voice is set up? Does the voice speak for the Indigenous peoples? But surely it can't speak for them all. So I think there's a problem with that. What happens to the Indigenous MPs in the House and, and, and in the Senate when from time to time they'll have a very different view to the voice? Mm. I mean, these issues are not being discussed. Not at this, all. This, this issue about the voice being put in a referendum has not been properly discussed in the Australian debate. We should have had a parliamentary committee looking at this or some form of mini constitutional convention looking at this. To this point, we've had neither. Mm. On superannuation, Paul, before we go, have we missed the most important point? When Chalmers has said that superannuation, and I'm not gonna go in tonight, I'd love to talk to you at another time about the, the difficulty with tax and the concessions that are made on a range of fronts, which we all have to face up to the fact might be overly generous. But Chalmers has said that superannuation could be invested in projects that, quote, his words, boost housing supply, manage climate change and spur digital transformation. Now, Paul, as I've said, if superannuation fund managers believed those projects were sensible investments, they could do that now, couldn't they? Well, precisely. So again, this is another issue which the government has put on the table. And I think that this is going to be a pretty daunting issue as far mm. as the government's concerned. Yep. We know, we know that superannuation trustees have got a statutory responsibility to make investments to maximise return uh, for their shareholders, that is for the retirement incomes of the Australian public, whose money it is. We've now got the government saying that the government thinks, however, that some of these investments can mm. serve national interest purposes 
or the purposes of the Labor government mm. when it comes to social housing or other issues. I think this is going to be a very difficult issue and on which to find a point of reconciliation. It's, it's very damaging. See, just Paul, Morrison proposed, albeit in the last week, that superannuation money could be used to assist people getting into a home, assist with the deposit. Labor was screaming from the treetops, but now they seem to be saying that your money, your money, my money, and the money of people out there in superannuation can be used to get someone else into a home, but they didn't want it to enable you to get your own home. How does that make sense? Well, Peter Dutton's made that point, and I think it's a, it's a sort of pretty uh, potent political point to make. There are two conflicts here. One conflict is that the coalition, and here Dutton has supported Morrison's policy from the last election, the coalition accepts the principle that first home buyers should be able to tap into some of their super to mm. acquire their home, which is very important mm. in terms of their overall lifetime assets and uh, Labor clearly opposes that. Then you've got the other conflict with Labor saying that it wants the purposes of super to be yes. broadened out into these mm. social agendas, which mm. Labor's committed to, and clearly the coalition opposes that. Super, it's always a difficult issue, Alan. It's always a, a really troubling issue. We're gonna have a lot of conflict over super over the course of the next couple of years. Absolutely. Just summing up, Paul, tonight we've talked about energy policy, we've talked about interest rates, we've talked about the voice. Uh, we haven't talked about industrial relations, but we will at some stage reinstating the old, you and I called it comparative wage justice, uh, the voice having the capacity, or put all those together. Many of these things, if they come unstuck, have the capacity to make Albanese a one-term government. What are your thoughts? I don't think it could be kept to a one-term government. I do, however, think that the Australian public has changed and it's more impatient now about governments than it used to be and it's more prepared to make a harsh judgment. So far, though, I think Albanese has still been enjoying somewhat of a protracted honeymoon. I think this will continue for some time. The coalition was very badly damaged at last year's federal election, Alan. I think it will take the coalition yeah. some time to recover. Labor's uh, still operating as a very politically confident government. The Labor research shows that Albanese is polling well, that the government continues to poll well. But of course, you'd expect that at this point in time. The difficult period for the government will be in the second half of this term, when it's got to come to grips with all these problems. However, we've not seen a one-term government in this country since the depression yes. of the 1930s. So I think at this stage, one would expect Albanese to get back. But there's one really important point I'd make about this. The test for Albanese is whether he can increase his majority at the next election. He wants to be a long-term prime minister. He doesn't become a long-term prime minister unless he increases his majority. But if he doesn't increase his majority, if he gets back, but with a reduced number of seats, that means he's driven into minority government. Mm. That is a deadly position mm. to be in. And of course, he's got to increase his primary vote from the 32.8. does. Paul, wonderful to talk to you. To our viewers out there, this man writes splendidly. You've heard from that tonight. Wonderful insights. He's got experience and knowledge about the scene. You can read him in the Australian newspaper. Paul Kelly is the editor-at-large, which gives him sort of freedom to write about anything, really. Editor-at-large in the Australian newspaper. Paul, thank you for your time. It's much appreciated. Thank you, Alan.
Speaking to Peggy Grandy in America yesterday, remember I raised this issue of the former President Donald Trump speaking in Maryland, which is not far from Washington actually. By the way, Maryland allegedly is the birthplace of the US national anthem. That aside, in delivering the headline speech, Donald Trump talked about warmongers and cast himself as the anti-World War III candidate. In a 90-minute speech, he railed against war no fewer than a dozen times. In a straw poll taken of those attending, Trump won 62% of support. Now, I raised this issue last week when I talked about Ukraine and the simple proposition that America, going in boots and all in support of Ukraine, axiomatically places America on a collision course with Russia. Now, Trump has warned many times that in that scenario, Russia and China are driven closer together. And that alliance would undeniably change the world order. China with arguably the biggest economy in the world, Russia with massive natural resources. Trump, anti-war. And as I've also said before, when Trump was president, we didn't hear a whimper out of the rocket man in North Korea, nor from President Xi in China, and nor from Putin. People used to joke about Trump, saying words to the effect that, that Trump would say, look, I know you've got big toys, you blokes, but just remember ours are bigger. Well, in the last 24 hours, President Xi and his foreign minister have accused America and its allies of waging, quote, all-round containment, unquote, on China, and warning of, quote, catastrophic consequences, unquote, unless Washington, quote, hits the brakes in its approach to Beijing. The foreign minister, Quinn Gang, read from a copy of China's constitution to assert that Taiwan was part of the motherland and warned against foreign interference in China's, quote, internal affairs. Now, if you marry those comments about America's need to hit the brakes and that America is speeding down the wrong path, the foreign minister also defended, and here we're reminded of Trump's observations and Trump alone making those observations, the foreign minister defended the close relationship between China and Russia and said the ties between Beijing and Moscow, quote, set an example for global foreign relations. He said, unquote, he said, quote, with China and Russia working together, the world will have a driving force, unquote. There's no doubt about that, but are we comfortable with that driving force? Now, I made those points last week in relation to the whole Ukraine issue. The Chinese foreign minister said yesterday ominously, quote, the more unstable the world becomes, the more imperative it is for China and Russia to steadily advance their relations, unquote. He affirmed that there was, quote, close contact, unquote, between the leadership of the two countries and that, quote, head of state relations formed the anchor of the relationship. That's Xi and Putin, precisely what Trump was arguing. I've also previously mentioned on the program that China and US relations have deteriorated under President Biden. You've got the US shooting down what it said was a Chinese spy balloon following in US airspace, further proof that China believes it's open season with a weak and incoherent Biden as president. But in this speech yesterday, the Chinese foreign minister blamed America for the worsening relations. He cited the balloon incident, but then talked about tensions over Taiwan 
and the Ukraine war. And this is where there's cause for concern because America and most of NATO are pouring resources into Ukraine, which means pouring resources in opposition to Russia, instead of, as Trump would argue, sitting these people down and talking about a satisfactory resolution. You cannot in this war between Russia and Ukraine have a winner take all. Zelensky will not be able to have everything he wants, including Crimea, and nor will Putin be able to argue that the pro-Russian component of Ukraine must be absorbed into Russia. So the war goes on. So the Chinese foreign minister said yesterday that the conflict in Ukraine seems to be driven by, quote, an invisible hand using the Ukraine crisis to serve certain geopolitical agendas, unquote. That he means by that to knock Russia out of the ring. That's what he means. And they won't allow that to happen, China. China presented itself as a peacemaker, but that's nonsense. In practice, China, as I said last week, has been totally supportive of Russia. The foreign minister said yesterday that America was acting with hypocrisy when it defended the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine, but not China's claim over Taiwan. Now make no mistake, the current leadership of the West is in my opinion, not capable of resolving this. This was the first media appearance by Quinn Gang as foreign minister. He said he had expected a question on Taiwan, so he brought with him a copy of the constitution of the People's Republic of China and read out the section that claimed Taiwan as a quote, sacred part of China. He also said that China's achievements, quote, bust the myth that modernization is westernization, unquote. As I've said, there's much more to this Ukraine conflict than Western political leaders are prepared to concede. It seems the only strategy they have is to, at all costs, beat Russia. And that's the legitimate goal. But doesn't it prompt the question, and what if we don't? As Trump says, if no peace can end this carnage, Russia in seeking victory will pull China into its orbit. Can any Western leader apart from Trump tell us what that then will mean? Without being too didactic, which means of course seeking to teach, Australians, as I've already said, must come to understand the damaging direction we're being taken on climate change and energy policy. People will say in the New South Wales election, well, hang on, what about Labor and Chris Minns? My answer to that is, there's an arrogance about Keane and co in New South Wales who believe they're unchallengeably right, that we'll all be driving electric vehicles by 2030, that there'll be 30,000 charging stations, that carbon dioxide emissions, which aren't a problem anyway, but in the eyes of Keane and Bowen and co they are, Keane will reduce them by 70% by 2035. This is arrogance with a capital A. You won't be driving the car you want under these people. You'll have to change over your gas stove. And Perrottet, who used to be a thoughtful liberal, has just rolled over and fallen into line. I mentioned last night Professor Gary Banks, the inaugural chairman of the Productivity Commission, emphasis on productivity, who talked about, my quote, the monumental bungling of the so-called energy transition has seen multiple governments, he wrote, not just in Canberra, contrive to maximise the cost, to maximise the cost to the nation of reducing emissions, while evidence-based policy, he said, has been abandoned in favour of simple-minded belief, unquote. 
I've just spoken about Bjorn Lomborg, the author of the book False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor and Fails to Fix the Planet. Lomborg makes the point, and I quote, most solar and wind would never have been installed if not for subsidies, unquote. And then quote, solar and wind are incapable of delivering the power needed for industrialization, powering water pumps, tractors and machines, all the ingredients needed to lift people out of poverty, unquote. Lomborg says quite simply of this renewable energy push, quote, this promised nirvana is a sham consisting of wishful thinking and green marketing. Well, Mark Lawson has been writing about this stuff seemingly forever. He's written several books, but one in particular, A Guide to Climate Change Lunacy. Bad forecasting, there it is on your screens, bad forecasting, terrible solutions. In a recent piece in The Spectator magazine last month, Mark Lawson wrote ominously, and I quote, the events of the past few weeks have brought Australia's energy future into sharp focus. We won't have one, he wrote. Mark Lawson, Lawson joins me. Mark, thank you for your time. I mean, you can't be blunter than that. We won't have an energy future. I mean, you write about green enthusiasts dominating the public debate. How has this come to pass? How have we become so brainwashed? Well, Alan, it's, it's a very good question. There's my coughing again. Um, I, uh, it just seems to me that the um, uh, Paul Keating had an excellent phrase for the fringes of his party. He called them Balmain basket weavers and the maddies. And these people have been allowed to dominate the debate, I suspect, because there's uh, the mainstream are highly reluctant to stand up to these guys, yeah. uh, you know, uh, um, uh, because, hey, look, we'll be seen to be soft on climate. Yeah. And um, uh, this, uh, it's one of the explanations. The other explanation is that um, uh, you know, the, well, the fringe has become so powerful through yes. this business about cancellation and yes, and I mean like basically, but, uh, basically we basically we lack the guts to take them on. I mean, you rightly say that if we go as we are, and I'm talking to our viewers here. I mean, this man's been through this a hundred times, but you say much of the East Coast reliable power supply will cease. It'll cease operating yes. by the middle of next decade, but. And this yes. is the point that you write, Mark Lawson, there may maybe nothing to put in its place. So, Mark, it's not a joke question when we say, are yes. we going to wander around in the dark? Well, I certainly hope not, Alan. Um, it, it, the uh, point that it can be reversed um, if policymakers come to their senses. Yeah. Uh, the problem, as I point out there, is that they're relying on uh, private investors to build a lot of this stuff, which they fondly imagine will replace um, reliable power, it won't. There's uh, ample evidence from overseas that you can't replace the uh, steam um, coal power plants with wind and solar. It's mm. been tried. It doesn't work. The no. only result is a real increase in power prices, and they're dragging Australia into this completely renewables grid Whereas we're an isolated grid, we're an isolated grid where you know miles, quite a few thousand miles from any other major grid, um, and we're really spread out. Uh, and um, but 
So where, where they've tried it in Europe, right, there's lots of quite much larger um, power grids within you know, speaking distance That's in Australian correct. terms. That's correct. One, if you, with one if, another. You fail, they, if you fail in Germany, you might be able to get something from France. But I just want to come back to this point, you see, yeah. because I'm not just talking to you. We're both talking to viewers out there. Yes. I mean, why yes, do yes. we accept people like Bowen and Keane arguing that renewable yes. energy projects will take over the role of coal-fired plants when there is considerable evidence that they can't. I mean, the same, you just made this yes. point, the same dumb governments are relying on private mm. investors to get stuck into renewable energy, but investment, as you say, has tanked. And I mean, well, what investment is there wouldn't be there without the rent seekers hands out for subsidies yes. from government. Yes, yes, that's right. That's right. Now, I will say here that um, the same thing is happening in Europe. Um, and in Europe, they have considerably more subsidies here than we do, right? In, uh, in say, UK, wind farms are paid to not generate if they're kicked off the grid for any reason. They're paid for their, you know, lost time or whatever it is, however their system works. Um, we don't do that. Um, but still, the same. It's the, 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 the same thing. Investment has tanked, and, mm. and part of that yes. is because it's tanked broadly. Yeah, but we've um, got to understand. Uh, we have to understand what this means. That if investors, the thing has tanked, yeah. because if you said this, unless, yes. and you just made this point before, but you made the, you wrote, unless policymakers come to their senses, consumers yes. who want to use electrical appliances or even turn on the hall light oh, in perhaps twelve right. years yes. or so may have to make their own arrangements. I mean, then there's gas. That's right. and they don't want us using gas yes. either. I mean, yes, that's right. It becomes mad. Yeah. Yes. I mean, how they've, can we read it? Done... Sorry. Sorry, they've done their best to even constrict the supply of gas. Look, no, you can't, you can't even explore for it. Well, for a while, you couldn't in some states, um, and uh, you don't know. And people scream and shout if you have a, um, a gas project, even offshore. Look, come on, guys, you, energy's got to come from somewhere. Mm. The renewable stuff just isn't going to work. This has been pointed no. out time and again. As I pointed out in another thing another article, you have things called wind droughts, right, where the wind dies and it dies over a very large part of uh, the area where the wind farms will be. Uh, they didn't really realise this until they actually started to build wind farms in all these areas, but you can see it clearly on, the, there are graphs you can look at, that clearly it shows when the, wind, when the wind goes down, it goes down for long periods and that period can vary from anywhere to a few hours to up to 72 hours or even yeah. longer, yeah. Right? And, uh, and they can't build, you can't build enough storage to cover that. It's ridiculous. You can't do this. Sorry, no. guys. Uh, but See, they, keep, they keep on doing it. They keep on doing it. I mean, we, we read about and we hear about the international energy crisis, but have yes. Australian politicians, your words, been, quote, oblivious to the notable failure of renewable energy yes. to make much of yes. a contribution to the overall energy supply despite decades of investment. I mean, Mark, uh, why, yes, do we, right. why do we listen to people like Cannon Brooks? Is it because he's got money? Because Cannon Brooks well, at AGL yeah. and then the governments in Queensland, yeah. Victoria and New South Wales have promised the closure of the bulk of the reliable coal-fired power supply yes. of the eastern half of the continent. And apart from Matt Canavan, which politician has had the guts to oppose this stuff? 
Look, I, you have named about the person I can think of that um, has even said this. No one seems to stand up and say there's no independent senators. Look, guys, it's not going to work. Um, think of something else. Um, now, um, the, one way that they could do it is, look, you'd have to, uh, at this stage, I would go in for harm minimisation. So you're always going to have these loonies because it's like an infection. I think of it as an infection. Because right? mm. Mike Cannonbrooks just seemed to go crazy. Mm. Hey, look, I, you know, I'm a oh, well, listen to Cannonbrooks because um, we're seduced by money. We listen to Cannonbrooks because yeah. we've got money. I mean, the simple truth is, yeah. isn't it, that whatever encouragement governments think yeah. they can make yes. to investors in renewable energy, yes. you've made the point. Generally speaking, investors are shaking their heads, and there's no yes. indication that away. investment yes. is improving. I mean. There's no. a simple answer, isn't it? Simple answer. Those who've invested using shareholders' money didn't do very well last year, Mark, did they? No, 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 they, they didn't. And obviously, um, at one point, the Victorian Premier, Premier, he was saying, look, superannuation funds, yeah. they could come to the party. Yes. Whenever anyone's desperate for investment, they say, why don't we get the superannuation funds? Well, Chalmers has said that. Chalmers yeah, has uh, said that. Uh, Yes, yes. Um, and come on, guys. Look, it's you know, it's a dodgy investment at best. If you're if you're saving for your retirement, you don't want them to be stuck in dodgy investments. Mark, do you think the corporate world, having sprouted this climate change zero emission energy crap, might realise that they better stick to their knitting and make a quid for their shareholders? Well, Alan, if they realise it, they're never going to say it. They are absolutely terrified of the you know, LGBT and the whatever and uh, the climate change God, climate change activists. They're terrified of people you know, um, <laughs> protesting outside their shareholder meetings. Amazing. They're absolutely terrified Amazing. that someone will come in and, and yeah. you know, sitting in their um, um, in their foyer and all that sort of thing. I've had some direct experience. I used to do a bit of work, a little bit of writing for banks. And, you know, if I wandered into something that wasn't, um, uh, you know, accepted material, oh, wow, no, we can't have that. Yes, I um, know. They I are mean, just I know. They are just it's terrifying. everywhere. You're quite right. Cowardice is everywhere. I mean, you cite the lobby group Wind Europe, which in January declared that orders for new wind turbines in Europe fell by 47% last yes, year compared yes. with the previous year. Yes. Revenue hasn't yes. kept pace with costs. And the same is true in Australia, oh. isn't it? As you say, investment collapsed yes. in the second half of yes. 2022. And then you make the telling yes. point because we've been fed this diet of renewable energy nonsense for years. And as you say, yes. I quote your words, quote, decades of talk about renewable energy and investment in all sorts of wild and wonderful projects, and these are the key words, has barely shifted the dial on renewable right, yes. energy's contribution. That's right, yes. Mark, That's right. And this is... Yeah, when are they going to wake up? Go right. And that fact is quite well known. Um, and here we're talking about the total energy tasks, which includes your petrol in your car, yeah. uh, your trucks... Yeah and, and um, gas for heating and gas for industrial uses, all that sort of thing. Um, now, uh, but the focus has always been on electricity generation, right? So, but that's only part of the energy story. Uh, and 
if you add up all that energy use, right, and then look at what wind and solar is contributing, it's uh, no a hope. tiny part, no hope. a few percent. No um, hope. I mean, but you know, you've got, the, uh, why have, why have a taxpayer-funded <laughs> energy market operator allegedly advising yes. the government, showing that in the last yes. 12 months, about 70% yes. of electricity came from black yes. and brown coal plants. Yes. Now, yes. they've yeah, got this right. information. How are Bowen and Keane and co going to turn all of this around by 2030? Well, their simple answer is they're not. They have to change direction. It's not a matter of reality changing direction. It's a matter of them changing direction or that picture behind you with all the lights and the Sydney yes. morning op uh, Sydney Opera House lit up and the buildings, yep. uh, that's that's not going no. to no. be so bright. Um, we're going to have to start not turning on lights. Yeah, I mean, but unless, I, see, course, I, I don't get this. You and I must be completely stupid. I mean, the International Energy Agency, there are any number of authorities, has said despite all yes. the talk about net zero emissions yes. worldwide, yes. according to the International yes. Energy Agency, wind, solar and biomass collectively amounted, this is the International Energy Agency, yes. to a few percent, about three yes. percent, of the total energy yes. task. Look, finally, Mark, yes. what future do we have while governments and environmentalists not only discourage fossil fuel industries, but virtually ban them? What is our future? Look, our future is going to be we'll have to sit in the dark for extended periods, perhaps up to, you know, perhaps for several days while we listening to uh, our battery-operated radios and listening to the ABC or someone, or our battery-operated radios and activists telling us that, look, renewables are the answer to everything and it's just frightening. simply... It's frightening. Um, frightening. Uh, reality I, that's got it wrong. I know. I, I said that would be the last, but I just make, must make this point because I've made it before to our viewers, but I'm sure you've caught up with this. We've got an environment minister in New South Wales, an absolute dunce, a minister, yes. saying the day before yesterday of coal-fired yeah. power stations, and these are his words, quote, everybody wants to shut them down as quickly as possible. Mark, uh, everybody. Right. Yes. What? Yes. What? I don't want, to sh I don't want them shut no. down. Um, and not anyway, the public. There's, not uh, the that's public. right. But the, oh, oh, and uh, this but the, James, uh, his name's James Griffin. He's in Manly, and there's an election on March 25, and they should chuck him out. Mark, great to talk to you. Keep right. it up. I mean, it's a hell of a battle. I mean, you're talking uh, fact, not you're talking fact, not fiction. And you made that point. Your yes. words. There are still major problems yes. of whether intermittent yes. power can replace coal plants. This is Mark Lawson. And then there is the blocking yes. of gas developments. I mean, these are virtually yes. edicts. Great to talk to you, Mark, and, and thank Alan, you for your time. If I could make just one point, of course, you my can. new book is coming out. Yes. Um, the um, uh, new dark ages. Uh, Connor Court. It's act actually out now, but you've got to look on online for it. I'm not sure when it will be in the stores. But anyway, um, uh, it's um, and it, it covers all these points and uh, talks about emissions and how basically they've lost the emissions battle even before it started. Yes. Um, well, I mean, your book, yeah, well, I think well, your book well, makes those points too. Mark Lawson, the book is yeah. A Guide to Climate Change Lunacy. Okay. Thank you for your uh, time, Mark. I, the, yeah, okay. All righty. Okay. okay. Wouldn't it be valid to argue that, indige that Indigenous Australians, who constitute 3.8% of the population, notwithstanding the impossible disadvantage suffered by many, isn't it valid to argue, though, that Australians are frightened to say it, 
that 3.8% of the population do enjoy inordinate attention. As I've said with The Voice, we're expected to approve a race-based amendment to the Constitution. You've got universities and, universities and business and sports administrators and allegedly intelligent people finding nothing wrong with any of this. An alteration, as we said to Paul Kelly earlier, an alteration of the Constitution that empowers one group of people over another. Why shouldn't the elderly have a special voice to the Parliament? Or Italians or Muslims or the disabled? A change based on race to accommodate some, and I stress some, of the 3.8% of the Australian population. I cited last week the number of government-sponsored entities that already have such a voice. And each year, we provide $30,000 million. You got that? $30,000 million to so-called close the gap. And yet we still have, as Jacinta Price has argued over and over again, intolerable violence towards women and children in the Northern Territory, plainly, money is not the answer, and nor is the voice. But there must come a time when these demands must end, because Australians have had a gutful welcome to country. What? Are we today's population invaders, are we? We're told we don't own the land. People have worked their butts off to buy property and cultivate it, in many forms, for the nation's wealth, which everyone enjoys, including the unlimited benefits provided to Indigenous Australians in housing and health and education and social services. As you know, there are moves now by Lydia Thorpe and others to assert sovereignty of our country and talk that we should pay rent for the privilege of being on someone else's land. This bulldust has to end somewhere. And it doesn't solve the problem in the Northern Territory. And yet now we have the pretense that the voice might. As I understand it, listen to this, there's a matter before the federal court where a wacka wacka man is suing the Commonwealth, arguing he should receive the age pension at the age of 64, not 67, because of his shorter life expectancy. His defence cites the Australian Bureau of Statistics figures submitted to the court that Indigenous men aged 65 are expected to live for three years fewer than non-Indigenous men. Understandably, the barrister for the Commonwealth argued life expectancy is not part of the legislative criteria to assess whether someone is eligible for the age pension. But nonetheless, this is the point that many Australians are making. They're sick of it. Every demand is the thin edge of the wedge followed by another demand. Now this chap, Dennis James Fisher, has one of the nation's leading barristers, Ron Merkel, a King's counsel handling his case. Now, the average Joe in Struggle Street would have no chance of even making contact with Ron Merkel, a former judge of the federal court, let alone having Ron Merkel handle the case. And may we ask, who is paying Mr Merkel? But Merkel argued that the case of Dennis Fisher was about, quote, correcting historical disadvantage, that Aboriginal men should be able to enjoy the pension to the same extent as non-Indigenous men, otherwise it would go against Section 10 of the Racial Discrimination Act. The Commonwealth's barrister argued that the legislation surrounding the age pension did not suggest that every person needed to be on the pension for the same amount of time. A full bench of the federal court is represented by three or more justices. Well, this case is being heard by a full bench, five, four of whom are women. They've reserved their decision. 
I know you're shaking your heads. Every other day, hardworking Australians are asking simply, what comes next? Well, it's London time. The report from Britain. None better than the man who seems to know everybody in British politics, David Maddox. You can read him at express.co.uk and it is still a soap opera about Boris and Rishi Sunak. But there's one other very big story which we'll raise in just a moment. David, thank you for your time. I mean, did some Tory MPs believe that Prime Minister Sunak pulled off a masterstroke, read the Northern Ireland Protocol, and that, that, that well, basically it would end a Boris-led coup. But not so. Where are we? Well, it's just just when you think it might be over, of course, it never is. So, uh, yeah, so um, Rishi Sunak comes back with a, a, another Brexit deal from the EU to sort out this Northern Ireland problem. And uh, everybody says, well, that's a lot better than anybody was expecting. Maybe, you know, maybe we should just accept this. Uh, but the, the Brexiteers and the Northern Irish Protestants went off into their dark rooms, still there, <laughs> studying the detail, refusing to uh, say whether they're going to support well, or not. See, and then Boris goes and gives the most inflammatory speech, says, no, 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 we've got, we've got, we've got, we can't possibly support this. I won't be voting for it. And, you know, rebellion's back on. And, you know, OK, what people want to know... What people want to know, is Boris closer to reclaiming the leadership or further away? Now, we won't raise the Sue Gray issue here. I want to talk to you about that in just a moment. But as we talk tonight, yeah, yeah. tonight, is Boris closer to reclaiming the leadership or further away? I, I wish I could answer that question properly. Uh, I, I think he's gradually moving closer. Mm. Um, and... and you know, the, the right of the party is definitely unhappy, although something happened yesterday that may well help Sunak, which is um, uh, he he has finally, finally introduced some uh, his bill to tackle illegal migrants. Yeah. And yeah. That, that actually, more than Northern Ireland, Brexit may close the door. Well, well, we, we, won't, we, won't, we won't go into that detail tonight because there's so much here to talk about. I just want to finish yeah. here the Boris speech. You said inflammatory speech. Boris said, when I left office, we were just a few points behind in the polls. <laughs> uh, Sunak's now more than 20 points behind. Would you say that the majority of the parliamentary party and the conservative base in the electorate believe that Boris Johnson is the only one who can bring them back from the brink? Because on these figures, you've written this, the Conservative Party could make history relegated to fourth at a general election. Absolutely. I mean, they're, they're looking at catastrophic results and um, some of them are in denial about it. But, you know, week after week after week, the polls say the same story and you can't just ignore that. So, yes, I mean... The fact is that Boris has the charisma. Uh, Rishi may actually be a more effective administrator, it turns out, but Boris has the charisma, he has to cut through. He may be their one chance of pulling this thing off. That's but, right. But uh, I, mean, I can't see them winning an election, Christ. Nonetheless, yeah. I mean, you've made the point. You talked just then about a rebellion. Uh, in relation to this Northern Ireland Protocol. We won't bore people with the detail, but there are a lot of people no. out there, Brexiteers, who say, well, hang on, we've got our lawyers looking at it. This is not what Rishi is saying it is. Therefore, 
If Rishi Sunak submits it to the Commons, would he be relying on Labor votes to get the deal through? And that would be a disaster, would it not? That would be a disaster, and that would poison his relationship with the Parliamentary Party, the Conservative Parliamentary Party. And there are other things coming down the line, which, you know, he's going to need a lot of goodwill on. And uh, if he's, yeah, if he's reliant on Labour votes, he's in serious trouble. Well, see, and given, that's going to be the big question. We'll find out next week, yeah. I think. I mean, given what you and I have talked about before, and your insights are very interesting, because only a couple of weeks ago you say, no, Boris, no hope, Boris has not got a chance. You're now saying, mm. in relation to this issue, and I think your words, one thing is clear, Boris Johnson is far from out of the game. Mr Johnson has mm. made his leadership pitch, and it is compelling. Very interesting stuff. Now, yeah. I want to get on. I mean, I think this is an unbelievable disaster in relation to Rishi Sunak. Now, David, this, I believe, is an extraordinary story. I mean, I've been around. I've seen a lot of political stories, but this takes the cake. This is this woman, Sue Gray. This is the public mm. servant, remember, uh, for our viewers, who's charged with investigating the misdemeanours in Downing Street called Partygate. Now, to be fair, her report, because she was thought to be a favourite of Boris's, her report provided nothing too damning about Boris Johnson. Sue Gray described, as I said, in the civil service as Boris's woman. Now, Sue Gray, David Maddox, whom you're watching here, has written that Sue Gray is one of the most powerful people in Britain, that she knows more about ministers, government policy and plans, the inner workings of departments, the rows and the ethical concerns, as well as the security issues, Sue Gray knows more than even the Prime Minister. Now, David, please explain. She has been let go by Rishi Sunak to become the Chief of Staff to Sakia Starmer. I mean, what are they saying? I mean, this makes the entire investigation into Boris Johnson tainted. How do you see this, that Sunak actually let her go? I mean, it's it's an appalling blunder. I mean, it's it's absolutely catastrophic, actually. Uh, it's 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 good news for Boris because nobody can take the investigation into him seriously. And uh, just to remind your viewers, there is actually an ongoing hearing about Boris by I think all the Privileges Committee into whether he lied about to Parliament. And the central witness to this investigation is one lady called Sue Gray, who's this this now ex civil servant. Uh, who's who's uh, wants to hop over to Labour, but the the, the reality is that I, I don't think there was any conspiracy with Boris at all. I think her report into Partygate was actually very fair, it, as you said, it wasn't mm. very damning. But the, the problem is, is a man called Simon Case. Yeah, this I'll is bring it. Bringing another the, name, who is th this the, is it? Is the cabinet secretary? He's the the chief civil servant in Whitehall, if you like. And he um, blocked this woman's promotion. Now, this woman knows more than... She's been around for years. If you want to get anything done in Whitehall, this was a woman to ask. She knows everything. She knows every detail. Um, Starmer is literally getting a kind of treasure trove of knowledge and inside knowledge that you could only dream of. Um, and it's... Uh, you know, Sunak should have intervened. The, the, the issue was she wanted a promotion. She wanted to head up a department. Um, Case blocked it. Sunak should have told Case to get knotted and let this woman, be, because his minister wanted this woman. Uh, and had that happened, none of this would have 
had been uh, an issue. Now she's planning to go to Labour with everything she knows. Well, let's just go back a bit here. You know, I, I find yeah. this, I've been in politics for I don't know how long, and I've worked for Prime Minister, I've never known anything like this. You've got a senior woman in the uh, Sunak government, Kemi mm. Badenoch. Forget what yeah. department she's got, it's irrelevant. But she yeah, yeah. And, and Michael Gove, friend of Badenoch's mm. and whatever, and they said, listen, you, you've got this new department that you're running, it's about international issues, uh, the woman who knows yeah. everything is Sue Gray, she's the woman you want, and show she yeah. would be head of the department, right? And this is yeah. this puts her on the ladder, and one day, the top job, cabinet secretary. Yeah. Badenoch wants her, and this Simon yeah. Case, who's the cabinet secretary, yeah. the top dog, knocked her back mm. on a technicality, the, as I understand it, the yeah. argument being, well, she's not at the appropriate status now to become mm. a departmental secretary. Now, yeah. am I right in saying, David, that there's been a bit of a carry on between Case and Sue Gray? Mm. She was his superior in a previous environment. Is, right. this, is this a bit of a get square? I think it is, and there's a lot of history there. I mean, Sue Gray as well is not a product of the kind of Oxbridge Fast Track Club. No. Uh, and there's a lot of snootiness about her. She's an ex-pub landlady. Her husband's a country and western singer. You know, and uh, she never really fitted in with the... You said that too quickly, David. David, you said that too quickly, and I hope one of our viewers picked this up. David, because he knows all this backwards, she was an ex-pub landlady. No. The husband's a country and western singer. She's not an Oxbridge, an Oxford or Cambridge woman. She just climbed through the ranks. So, no. so now she's knocked back by Simon Case, a get square, no. you've said. She sees the polls. She thinks that Starmer's going to win. Starmer's made a mm -hmm. chief of staff. She thinks, I'm yeah. chief of staff. I can one day become the cabinet secretary. I can have whatever job I want and perhaps be moved to the House of Lords. So she ain't stupid. Exactly. She ain't stupid, David. Exactly. But Sunak could have overruled Simon Case, couldn't he? Yeah. He could have yes, said, Badenoch, Badenoch's going to have the woman he wants. Stay away. Yeah. I'm making the decision. Why didn't he? Yeah. Because, because he, he lacks a gumption to do it. And this is a problem with Sunak. You know, he's a good administrator, but he's not a, he doesn't think politically at all. He doesn't think of consequences at all. He just follows the kind of status quo way too much. And uh, I mean, I, I wonder, this is, you know, comes back to our earlier point, would Boris be better in a situation like that? Uh, Boris would have been more likely to say no, case, Get, get away from this and let let this woman uh, go to yeah, uh, Badenoch's top, so, you know. I mean, surely the Tory party are now saying, hang on, this woman knows everything about the government. Mm. Everything about the They're government. Terrified. She's the smartest well, tool in the shed. She's now going with all that knowledge because Rishi Sunak mm. didn't intervene and said to Simon Case, rack off, Badenoch wants this woman, mm. she's going to have this woman. Because he, yeah. he bypassed her, she knew she had no future 
in the civil service. So she goes to Starmer with all the knowledge of the Tory government that Starmer is trying to defeat. Now, surely this has got to damage profoundly Sunak's claim to leadership. I think I think it does, and actually think it's the in some ways with all the things flying around, this is the biggest issue of them all. Definitely, and it's, uh, definitely. You know, you you cannot allow somebody with this sort of inside knowledge to go and work for the opposition. I mean, it's madness. Although I should say she hasn't been given permission to take the job yet. There is an ongoing investigation. Uh, to see whether she should be allowed to take the job. Right. So now, now Starmer yeah. is not off the hook, is he? Because now Starmer has been asked by the media, amongst others, mm. when did you first start speaking to this woman? When mm. I mean, you don't just suddenly work in the civil service one day and say, "Oh, Keir, I'll come and overwork for you." Uh, did she apply yeah. for the job? How many others applied for the job? Did you advertise the job? And Starmer refuses, does he not, to answer any of these questions. So he's got a few problems to solve. Well, this is a question. And what we want to know is, were these conversations happening when Boris was being investigated by this woman? And uh, we, uh, Starmer won't be honest about it. He won't be straightforward about it. He's been very opaque about the whole issue. Mm. He's insisting nothing improper happened, but we find out over the weekend that she was always on the list to be chief of staff. Well, this is uh, suggests um, discussions going way back. Mm. And we know for a fact that this woman attends Labour Party meetings. She goes with her son, who uh, is chair of the Labour group in Ireland. So, you know, it's mm. there, there's a lot of twists and turns to Absolutely. this story. It's, it's really quite a mini soap opera. And in of its course, own right. what it means is all these investigations into Boris, headed up by Sue Gray, are now completely tainted. Jacob Rees-Mogg <laughs> wants an inquiry <laughs> into all of this sort of stuff. I mean, it's going to go on and on. Yeah. This is a big story. Just before you go, I sense that this both may be beneficial to Boris and that Starmer if he can't answer these questions, is also damaged? I think so. I think he is. And actually, this is the first serious political mistake that Starmer's made in 18 months because it's so brazen. It's unusual for him. It's not really his style. Mm. He's obviously thinks it's worth the risk, <laughs> but uh, it, it could be a ter- it could be a turning point. It Whether could it's be enough of a turning uh, point well, is another question. We'll talk to you next week. It's quite amazing. Every week we say <laughs> what's going to happen next week, and there's always something. It just seems, of course, what British politics is good about uh, these days is intrigue and controversy. So there'll be more next week. David Maddox, great to talk to you. Thank you for your time. Fascinating stuff, isn't it? There he is, David Maddox in London. Now, before we go, Aussie mortgage holders have been hit with another rate rise this week. As you know, the Reserve Bank hiked interest rates by another 25 basis points. This takes the cash rate to 3.6%, the highest level in over a decade. It also means the Reserve Bank has hiked interest rates at a pace we have not seen since records began in the late 1950s. The implications are, of course, profound. Estimates now suggest that 1.35 million Australians are in mortgage stress. Since April last year, monthly mortgage payments have gone up by almost $1,000 a month on a $500,000 mortgage, 
on a $1 million mortgage, the repayments have gone up to almost $2,000 a month. Why such a change so quickly? It is not uncharitable to say that the blame lies with the Reserve Bank and Canberra. Be 22, uh, that's the federal government. Between 2016 and 2022, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Australians, were irresponsibly encouraged to enter the housing market via all sorts of government incentives. The narrative was simple. House prices in this country can only go up and record low interest rates were the norm. They were wrong. For too long, Canberra, especially during COVID, and this was a Liberal government, completely on the wrong track in its response to coronavirus, borrowed unbelievable amounts of money in the hundreds of billions of dollars to fund their lockdown and bailout measures. As a result, the Reserve Bank printed money to keep interest rates down. They didn't want Australians to face lockdowns and rising interest rates at the same time. We're now experiencing the consequences of failed public policy. The very point that Paul Kelly made earlier. Government and the Reserve Bank. Because rates were kept down for so long, inflation spiralled out of control. Now they've resorted to the knee-jerk reaction to hike rates at a pace we haven't seen in the last six decades. Surely someone has to be held to account. Why isn't Prime Minister Albanese holding Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe to account for saying that rates wouldn't rise from record lows until 2024? Now Lowe's on a million dollar taxpayer funded salary. He hasn't taken a pay cut since plunging hundreds of thousands of Australians into financial stress. Why isn't the Prime Minister reducing his government's own spending to reduce the need to keep hiking rates to kill inflation? Why isn't the Prime Minister making the call to state governments to stop reckless spending? Or is Anthony Albanese too busy thinking about net zero emissions, marching in the Mardi Gras and pushing his so-called Indigenous voice to Parliament? Why isn't the Prime Minister talking about the supply side of the economy? As I've already said tonight, energy is incorporated into everything an economy does. Energy prices continue to climb because of the Albanese government via Chris Bowen brutally and arrogantly pursuing the so-called transition to renewable energy. And the states are in lockstep with Canberra. Why are food prices high? Well, energy prices feed, as I've said earlier tonight, into everything. Why are rents so high? Government red tape has stopped developers from getting on with the job. Not enough houses or unaffordable houses, so rental demand skyrockets. As I told you last night, some tenants are being hit with $200 increases in rent for a piddling one-bedroom apartment. And now the Albanese government is bringing in record numbers of immigrants and international students. They have to live somewhere. And to think this government markets itself as the party of the worker and the battler, it's a palpable and provable untruth. That's it from me for tonight. Hope you've enjoyed the program. Thank you for your company. Don't forget you can listen to the podcast of tonight's program from 6am tomorrow. Just go to the podcast app and search ADH TV. And remember, you can always email me, Jones at adh.tv. I'll see you next week, Tuesday night, on our extended program. You're watching ADH. Thank you for being with us. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.